You can turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And as you're doing that, let me, uh, let me note how impossible it is to overestimate the damage done in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 contains what we call the fall. It's the, the moment that Adam and Eve uh, rebel against God and plunge themselves and all of their descendants into sin. As the old saying goes, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Now, before this reckless fall, Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship with God. It's difficult for us even to imagine what exactly that's like, but we know that they walked with God in the Garden of Eden. Now, after the fall, God exiled them from the garden. You see, they had shattered their relationship with God by their sin, and they'd even shattered their relationship with one another. So in one of the very interesting and slightly amusing bits of the early part of Genesis, before the fall, Adam and Eve lived together naked and unashamed. And after the fall, they had to hide behind clothing. Now, Adam and Eve, therefore, would never be perfectly open with one another. They would never be perfectly at peace with one another because sin had now entered the world. And you and I, every day, are living in the wake of this fall. If you're a Christian, you do have fellowship with the Father and with the Son, and we have fellowship with one another, but it's not perfect. Not yet. Sin remains, and it pushes you at times from God and at times from other people. There are moments, even seasons, where we feel distant from one another, and there are moments and there are seasons when we feel distant from God. Right? From one another, there are times when we build walls to avoid being known by one another. Right, right now, many of us uh, are wearing these masks, which make it more difficult for us to recognize one another. Well, I won't be the first one to say that, in a sense, people wear masks all the time. Right, obscuring others' vision of them, right? We, we push people away, right? There are times when we push God away, right? We blame God for our sin or the conditions that we argue led up to our sin. We simply at times live as if God is not there, right? living practically as atheists, there are moments, even seasons, when God seems very far away from us. Now, all of this conflict that I've just been describing with God and with one another, all this conflict, the outworking of the fall, can leave many of us wondering, am I truly saved? Am I genuinely a Christian? I don't feel close to God. I don't feel close to the church of God. Do I really know him? Now, is our feeling about God or even one another a reliable guide to reality? Well, I would say feelings are important, but they're certainly not all important. What matters are the facts. What matters is the truth of God's word. And so in our passage this morning, we're told, we're told Writing to fallen people, we're told that we can know we know God, which is pretty incredible. We can have assurance of our salvation. Our passage, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 through chapter 2, verse 6, it doesn't tell us everything we need to know about assurance. And that's why I can't make you come back to the entire series in 1 John. Um, and I'm not sure if I could, I would but I really want you to, because you can't get everything you need to know about a complicated topic like assurance from just one section 
of John's letter, which is largely about assurance. But boy, what we learn today is crucial and arguably the least understood aspect of assurance that exists in evangelicalism today. So listen now to our passage, beginning in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, for this text, I want to share four truths that help us understand the relationship between holiness and assurance. And I pray God uses this sermon to grow you in your own holiness and in your dependence upon Christ, who is our advocate. All right, here's the first truth. It is crucial you know who God is. It is crucial you know who God is. This is how John starts the passage. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. In him is no darkness at all. Everything John is going to say through the rest of this letter is rooted in that message, the knowledge of who God is, the knowledge that God is light. And the fact that God is light is found throughout the Bible. In Exodus, it's no coincidence that God appears as a pillar of fire by night, illuminating the way for the Israelites coming out of Egypt. In Ephesians 5, 8, we are told to walk as children of the light. Those who are God's children are simultaneously referred to in Scripture as children of light. So if God is your father, he is your light, and his light is purity, and it's goodness, and it's holiness. And in fact, notice the end of verse 1, in him is no darkness at all, right? That is, in a sense, an exclamation point to this statement, God is light. What do I mean by that? In him is no darkness at all, right? God is 100% light. God is, to put it another way, God is perfect with a capital P, right? I recently bought a gallon of white paint. I wanted that paint white, but I didn't want it too white. And so I told that to the person at the counter. The person opened up the can of paint and put two black drops in mixed it all up, which is always fun to see. And then when she was done, opened up the can, white, uh, but not that kind of bright white that's really going to pop. In that paint, there was darkness. God's not like that. When you think about God, you've got to think about perfect and total perfection, perfect all the way through. Right? Holiness is what God is. It's not merely that God does holy things. No, God is holy. It's not merely that what God does is good. What God does is good, 
because God is good, He is holy, and He just can't do otherwise, right? I can lay an egg of a sermon. I'm not God. God's message is always awesome and perfect because He is always and internally awesome and perfect. And there's no one like God, no one in this room, no one on this planet, no one like God. In the famous book describing the many attributes of God, Stephen Harnock described God's holiness with these words. God only is absolutely holy. There is none holy as the Lord, 1 Samuel 2.2. It is the peculiar glory of His nature. As there is none good but God, so none holy but God. God is infinitely holy. He is holy from Himself. As the highest heaven is called the heaven of heavens, so is God the holy of holies. He contains the holiness of all creatures put together and infinitely more. Right? So I was thinking, well, how can I describe to you the holiness of God? Right? Sort of an abstract thought. I can't. Right? It's like, it's like describing to you the blueness of the Pacific or trying to describe the Grand Canyon or trying to describe Mount Everest which apparently weighs, what, 1.3 trillion pounds, I learned in Sunday school today. Um, you've you've got you've to see the blueness, and you've got you've to uh, let your jaw drop at the sight of the depth of the Grand Canyon or the, or the height of, of Mount Everest. Christians today, you and I, are eager to know what to do. We're eager to know how to live. We want instructions about how to navigate life's many trials, and life is full of them. We want practical sermons. But before we think about how to live, we must know who God is. God is light. In Him is no darkness at all. And that's the truth that matters most. And until we, we know that truth, and not just intellectually, we'll never, really, we'll never really know how to live. So when you read a passage of Scripture, first and foremost, again, many of us heading into the new year, recommitting ourselves to reading the Bible, as you're doing that, remember, first and foremost, the most important question that you can be asking of any passage of Scripture is so simple. What does this passage teach me about God? Before you apply it to yourself, let the Word tell you more about God Himself, our holy God. Elders, what a joy to see you make these vows as we did that together today. As we teach others the Bible, let's not forget John's message. God is light, right? This, so for all elders and for anyone who teaches the Bible, right, our teaching of the Bible should always come with a healthy dose of God's character. If we assume we know who God is, if we assume those whom we're teaching know who God is, we are going to inevitably use the Bible as a self-improvement manual. Instead of seeing it, the Bible, as the awesome revelation of God Himself. No wonder Jesus is the Word. Now, maybe as you listen to me, you would say that you don't really believe in God, at least not the God of the Bible, at least not the God presented here in the Bible. You might wonder why it matters then that the Bible exclaims God is light. It matters because God is the reason you can see. God himself is the reason you can see. Now, that's true physically, right? That's not really what I'm talking about. It's true spiritually in the sense that if you know God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and put your faith in him, you see God in a sense for who he is as Savior. It's true spiritually. That's not even what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the, the simple fact that, that you know and distinguish between right and wrong. 
Right? The fact that when you see someone cracking the window of the Capitol building, right, you know intuitively right, that shouldn't happen. Right? Whatever you think about everything that's going on, like, you know that's wrong. How do you know that's wrong? Because God is light. And you, whether you acknowledge it or not, are seeing the world, if you will, in the light of God, who has made enough of himself known so that you can't help but know things that are true, that you only know to be true, because you, even as a non-Christian, are living in the light of God. His light shines so brightly, we can all know good and evil. We can all distinguish between right and wrong, justice and injustice. And for all of our disagreements, oh, and they are many, it's amazing how much we agree on. And this agreement is possible because God is light. So maybe you don't believe in God, but I would argue that you, what you do believe, you believe because of God, because God is light. So that was the first truth. All right, it's crucial to know who God is. And of course, John particularly driving home the point that God is light. Here's the second truth. It's possible to think you know God when you don't. It is possible to think you know God when you don't. John says it is a lie to claim to have fellowship with God while you are walking in darkness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. All right, so if you are walking in darkness in claiming to have truth, to know God, to be in fellowship with God and with his people, if you're walking in darkness, well, these claims, they are false. Right? You're a liar. The Bible says you are deceived. Now, walking in darkness is, by the way, it's, it's, it's more than, than merely sinning. I don't like to say merely sinning. But walking in darkness is, is more than sinning. Right? We all sin. Right? We all sin every day. It is, in fact, foolishness to claim sinlessness. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, right, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. And John was probably writing to a group of people who had claimed that having become Christians, they now no longer sinned. And John says, well, that's just, that's just foolish. Right? If you claim to have not sinned, uh, you make God a liar. Right, who has made it very clear in his word that we are all sinful. So becoming a Christian doesn't change the fact that you are a sinner. So therefore, this is important, therefore whatever walking in darkness means, which you can't do and truthfully claim to know Jesus, whatever that means, it, it must mean more than the simple fact that you sin. So the key, I think, is in that word walk. It conjures up the idea of, of continual sin. Walking, walking, walking. It, it brings up this idea of someone comfortable in his sin or her sin. Someone who, who walks in the darkness has made peace, signed a treaty with his sin. She's grown content in it, no longer wants to fight against it. But like someone, the alarm clock is blaring, beep, beep, beep. Beep, beep, and just on and on and on and on, and you don't wake up, right? You're just too comfortable in that bed, right? Your conscience tells you, get up, turn on the light, but you've, you've made a peace treaty with that clock. It will blare. You will ignore it. Look at 1 John 2, 4. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Notice John's concern is with those who claim to be Christians. In verse 6, it says, it's referring to those saying they have fellowship with him. In verse 4, it's those saying they, they know him. In John's day and in our day, many would say they know the Lord when they, they don't know the Lord. Matthew 7.21 has come to many of your minds already. Not everyone who says to me, Jesus says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Right? It's not enough to proclaim 
Jesus as Lord. I think one of the, I love, I love religious liberty, love it, love it, love it, would fight for it and die for it. Isn't it interesting in a country with arguably more religious liberty than any other country on the face of the planet, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of individuals who would raise their hand and say they know Jesus, but who would not or rarely darken the door of a church. And I'm not arguing that, you know, entering those doors, like something magical happens and, woo, you're a real Christian. Well, of course not. I'm saying, how interesting is that? That in the nation where you have the most freedom to exercise your faith by gathering with the saints, you have so many unwilling to do that. Right? Well, John, this is not a 20th century or 21st century phenomenon. It's always been this way. And so Jesus prepared his disciples for that reality. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. We can lie to ourselves by thinking God saved us, no matter how we go on living. We can lie to ourselves by minimizing or by denying our own sin. Look at 1 John 1 chapter, or excuse me, 1 John 1 verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Those who, those who deny their sin, they don't see it. They may not think they're perfect. Very few people, I have not met very few people who just sort of this baldly say, I don't sin. But I've met a lot of people who they would say they're not perfect, but they are unconvinced sin. Their sin is a genuine problem in God's eyes. They believe God grades right on a curve. So long as they aren't the worst in the class, they're going to graduate right to fifth grade. They've come to define holiness as being better than the next guy. And they've forgotten that God is light. Do you see why that first point is so important? If you don't have that first point embedded in your mind, everything else is, is not going to compute. So in Luke chapter 18, there's this Pharisee. A Pharisee was just a religious leader. But the crazy thing about the Pharisees is they were supposed to know better. If anyone was supposed to know the Bible in the first century, it, it was the, the Pharisee. So this religious leader, he goes to the temple and he goes to pray. And the gist of his prayer is how grateful he is that he's not as bad as the guy standing next to him. Right? So it would be like, and Chad, not to throw you under the bus, but it'd be like Chad standing here going, man, I'm, you know, this vow thing is going well. I'm, I'm, I'm in it. I'm all for this. And I'm just glad I'm not like Pat. You know, um, I know Pat is saying these vows, but man, I'm just, whew, you know, this is a pretty serious thing, but sorry, Pat. Um, all very godly men. But as, as, as we just, we neglect the fact when we read these verses over and over again, how just astonishing it is. Like he gets into the temple, right, which literally is home to the holy of holies. And he says, God, I thank you that I'm not an adulterer. I'm not an extorter. I'm not a, I don't spend my money, you know, raising taxes, which was considered a sinful activity back in, in the day. Other people became the standard of his holiness. And, and in that sense, he's effectively concluded that he hasn't sinned. So it's possible to be deceived, to get it wrong, to think you're saved when you're really not. So a long time ago, there was a pastor by the name of William Haslam. And after years and years and years of pastoral ministry, the Holy Spirit began to work on Haslam in such a way that he began to wonder whether he was genuinely saved. Now, I don't know William Haslam because he's dead. He may have had a very sensitive conscience, but that clearly wasn't the only problem because very concrete examples of disobedience to the Lord began to crop up in his ministry. For example, uh, one widow in the church that he had gone to to raise money for the renovations of the church basically pointed out to him that he cared more about the building than he did about her soul. And the Holy Spirit began to cut Haslam to the heart. So one day he does what I do every week. He gets into the pulpit and he starts preaching on the, uh, the question that Jesus asked the Pharisees. And Jesus says, 
uh, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? So Haslam is preaching this sermon when the Holy Spirit started working on his heart. And then later he described what happened as he preached. Let me tell you what he said. Something was telling me as I preached all the time, you are no better than the Pharisees yourself. You do not believe he is the Son of God and that he has come to save you any more than they did. I do not remember all I said, but I felt a wonderful light and joy coming into my soul. And I was beginning to see what the Pharisees did not. What did the Pharisees see? Well, they, they didn't see their sin. They didn't see their unrighteousness meant that they were separated from God by a ditch so wide, none of their holiness could ever lurch over it. They didn't see that God must be the standard of their holiness and not their neighbor, a standard they could never, ever meet on their own. And as Haslam is preaching that sermon, the scales fell off his eyes and he was born again. So do you see the problem? And maybe more to the point, are you the problem? Maybe you are blinded by your own self-righteousness, like the Pharisees. Maybe you think you could never be wrong about yourself. Maybe you have a hard time opening up the Scriptures and lamenting your sin. Maybe when week after week someone leads us in a silent confession, you go, oh, this makes me very uncomfortable because I don't know what to say. Maybe you were baptized at a very young age, and even though you've... Maybe you were baptized at a very young age, and even though you know you've never really lived for the Lord, you go on with life, never really paying attention to that nagging suspicion that you need to be born again. Maybe you are blinded by some sin in your life, some pattern of rebellion that you have become so accustomed to, so useful, so used to, that you hardly notice it's there, right? I'm thinking of someone who um, works in the yard and maybe doesn't wear gloves and week in and week out, and, and he works in the yard so long and so hard that he's developed these calluses so that he could pick up like a log with splinters and not get stuck. Is that, spiritually speaking, you? Like, you've just grown comfortable gossiping about other people. You've just grown so comfortable in your lust that the last thing you would ever do is tell someone that you're struggling and that you need help. You've become comfortable neglecting God. You say to yourself, God is a forgiving God, and you just move on with your life. One of my favorite sermon illustrations, all of my favorite sermon illustrations are not my own. Um, this one is one of my favorite. It's Charles Spurgeon, that, that English preacher of old. And he described two men running through a field. And uh, one, the field was a field of thorns. And one man has a coat of armor. And he runs through the field of thorns. And when he's done, he's as happy as a lark because he's un, untouched. He didn't feel anything because he's wearing armor. Another man took his shirt off, which I'm not going to do. He runs through the field of thorns, and when he's done, he's scathed, bloodied, and bruised. And Spurgeon said, well, that field of thorns is the sin in the world that we all run through because we're all sinners. All of us sin. He said the Christian is the one who runs through the field of thorns and sees the blood and feels the pain and has fought the fight. And the non-Christian is one who feels nothing and smiles through it all. Only the Christian cares. Now, brothers and sisters, this fact that we can be deceived, which I know is unnerving to a percentage of you, this fact that we can be deceived is not a call to perfection. We cannot be perfect this side of heaven. It is, however, a call to war. It's a call to war. Declare war against your sin. Take it seriously. Do whatever you need to do to cut sin out of your life. 
if you are not willing to declare war against your sin, you have no reason to think you are on God's side. Don't confuse declaring war with thinking we're all of a sudden become the perfect church. No, a church of sinners, a church who need longer times of confession of sin and not less. But yes, a church of people who are eager, willing to declare war against their sin every day. And, 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 and to do this, you've got to practice self-examination. You've got to study yourself. Examine your heart. Ask yourself the question, where am I struggling? Right? Right, Chad, not where is Pat struggling, but where am I struggling? Right? Where, where do I need help? Where do I need to grow? How am I falling short? And I want you to know that kind of self-examination, that's normal. If there's any part of you that thinks, well, this is a little weird, it's not weird. Like really normal. Examine yourself to be sure you're in Christ. It's silly to go to war without knowing who the enemy is. Now, I know the enemy is Satan, right? But it is also clear that there is sin in your own heart, indwelling sin that is your enemy. Examine your heart. Identify what it is so that you can fight against it. Finally, as I said when I was introducing the elders, be part of a community. Don't go to war alone. You need others. The fact that we can be deceived is proof positive. We need people willing to be in our life and give us a dose of reality. So visitors, I would say to you, find a church family. Um, Mount Vernon is not perfect, but I guarantee there are people in this room, and I guess in the other room, and I guess online, who are willing not only to point out evidences of God's grace in your life, but willing to point out patterns of sin in your life that you may not be seeing yourself. If you want to find out more about that, come to our visitor's lunch after this service today. Um, hear more. But, but whatever church you join, and I do pray that you would join a church, realize it takes a community to go to war against your sin. All right, that was truth number two. It is possible to think you know God when you don't. Truth number three, it is clear holiness is the fruit of salvation. It is clear holiness is the fruit of of salvation. Or imagine for a moment walking into an orchard in the dead of winter. So I guess right about now. And not being a farmer, if there were no signs telling me what these trees were, I would not know what those trees are. Is it an apple tree? Is it a pear tree? Is it a peach tree? Is it a nectarine tree? Are there even nectarine trees? I don't know. I'm not a farmer. So what do I do? I could wait. Wait for spring. Wait for fall. Wait for the harvest to come. Right? You'll know that tree by its fruit. Oh, that sounds familiar. Jesus said that discerning the sincerity of a disciple is like waiting for the harvest. You will recognize them, Jesus said, by their fruits. The spiritual fruit that Christians are called to bear, that which identifies us most readily as believers, can be summarized in one word, holiness. Holiness is the fruit that we're after. It is the evidence of our salvation. It's the gift God loves to give his children. God's children will bear spiritual fruit. They will walk in the light. They will look more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. So John wrote these words so that his children, now he's speaking affectionately as a pastor to his congregation. He wrote so that his children would bear much spiritual fruit. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's that's John's way of saying he wants his people to pursue holiness, to, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I think people get tripped up on this verse because he just said a couple times that, you know, you can't deny you sin. And now he says, I write this to you so that you don't sin. So I don't think you need to be get tripped up about this. Um, how many games does a college football team play a season? What? I don't know. Somebody needs to say it really loudly. 
12. All right. So the coach doesn't say to the team, hey, guys, let's go out there and win nine games. I don't think so anyway. It's like, no, let's, let's go win them all. Right? John isn't going to go out there and say, I write this to you so that you only sin a little bit. No. He wants them to be perfect. Doesn't mean they're going to be perfect, but that's his, that's his desire for them, that every day they would attack their sin wholeheartedly so that they don't sin. Right? Don't everybody come and tell me that different college teams play different amount of games. I don't want to hear it. All right? <laughs> Look at chapter 1, verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from, from all sin. Those who walk in the light are those who have been saved, saved from their sin, saved into a community of faith. They experience cleansing from their sins. When they go to God after sinning, they know they'll receive forgiveness because they've already been forgiven. It's not that holiness leads to cleansing. It's that cleansing leads to holiness. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 5. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. That, that, that love of God is our love for God. Right? The more we mature, the more we are in Christ, the deeper and stronger and richer our love for God is. Right? Our love is perfected. It's completed. It, it, don't get, it, it's not that you know, we, we, it, we're perfect. But our love for God has been completed. It's, it's matured. Well, well, how do you know that you are a mature believer? How do you know you're maturing as a Christian, that your love for the Father is being perfected? Simple. You obey his word. You, you keep his commandments. Those who truly love God are those who have been truly saved. And if that's you, you, you keep his commandments. Look at the rest of verse 5. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Right? If you abide in Christ, which means you trust him, you rely on him, right? you rest in him. If, if that's the case, you, you walk like him. You walk the way he walked. Why do you think Christians are called Christians? It's because we claim to follow Christ, to live as he lived. And this is exactly what we heard from Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is who bears much fruit. Who bears much fruit? Those abiding in Christ. Holiness is a war we must fight. Yes, we must commit ourselves to walk in holiness. But, but holiness is also a gift that we're to receive. John wants you to know that even your obedience is a gift from God. Holiness is the fruit, the result of salvation. Now that means that you should thank God whenever you are aware of holiness in your life. Like, stop and thank God for that. Thank God that he has chosen to bear that fruit, to produce that fruit in your life. Like, were you patient with your dad this week? Thank God. Were you gentle with your spouse this week? Like, you can thank God for that. Don't pat yourself on the back. Thank God. Every good and perfect gift, including your holiness, is from God. Many of us receive a lot of gifts at Christmas, and that's a fine tradition, right? A good, a good testimony to the, the great gift that Christ is. But, but, but the gift giving from God didn't stop with the birth of the Savior. It continues every day in the Christian's life as you, by God's grace, live a life that you can only live because you've been empowered by his Holy Spirit to obey him. This means that you should abide in Christ. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. We abide in Christ by trusting him. And he abides in us by filling us with his Holy Spirit so we can bear spiritual fruit and grow 
in holiness. So trust Christ this morning. Some of you need to trust Christ with your past. Right? Everything that's happened to this moment. You need to trust Christ with that. Not be bitter. Not be angry or resentful. Just trust Christ. The one in whom, for whom, through whom all things were made. Right? The one who stilled the waves. Trust him with your past. Some of you need to trust him with your future. You, you don't know where you're going to be in a year. You don't know how you're going to feed the family. You don't know if your child is going to walk with the Lord or keep walking with the Lord. You don't know where your marriage is going to be. You need to trust Christ with your future. That's what it means to abide in him. And this takes humility. But it's those who abide in Christ. That is those who have been truly saved who bear fruit. Right, that was the third point. Holiness is the fruit of salvation. Fourth and finally, it is glorious to know holiness is not your Savior. It is glorious to know holiness is not your Savior. Now, bear with me. I, I need to tell you about a problem that Old Testament Israel faced. And Jeffrey, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the reminder that God is stronger than the nations. Old Testament Israel had this, this yearly temptation. And as you read through the Old Testament, sometimes it strikes you as almost funny. They were constantly tempted to rely on Egypt. There was just something about Egypt that was especially attractive to the conscience, the ethos, the sentiment of the Old Testament Israelites. So the moment they leave Egypt, you remember, they wanted to go back to Egypt. In Egypt, they presumed there would be, you know, water and meat. Now, we all probably know that, but as the Old Testament people of God mature, uh, they are tempted now not to go to Egypt for bread, but to go to Egypt for an army, for chariots and for horses. And... And when things get really bad, they're tempted to go back to Egypt later on in their history for refuge and abandon the promised land altogether. So the idea is they should be relying upon God and getting on their knees and praying to him. But instead, again and again and again, they want to go to Egypt. Now, why do I bring this up? When the prophets would address Israel about this particular problem, they would say, don't you understand Egypt is like a staff? And if you lean on that staff, it's going to break and splinter. And in fact, it's going to pierce you in the hand. So don't turn to Egypt, that broken staff, the prophets say, turn to the Lord. I think this is a good picture of how we are tempted even today, probably not to go to Egypt, but tempted to lean on our holiness we're tempted to lean too heavily on the staff of our own righteousness. It's one thing for holiness to be the evidence of our salvation. It's another thing to think holiness is the guarantee, the source of our salvation. Let me put it this way. You cannot be a Christian without being holy. But holiness does not make you a Christian. By all means, be encouraged when you see yourself walking in holiness. Thank God for that. But be careful. All of your joy and confidence and satisfaction must not be found in your obedience. Because if it is, you're leaning on a staff that will break and pierce your hand. It's easy to do. Hey, God, look at me. You know, I'm not like all those people that Aaron was just preaching about who hardly ever go to church. Like, we're in the midst of COVID-19 and I'm here. Not saying any of you said that. Lord, I was so faithful. I stayed away from pornography for another month. Did you notice? Father, did you see the way I honored my husband even when he deserved to be strangled? Right. Ever since Adam, we have been, we are masters at self-justification. I mean, just 
geniuses. We are like the Bill Gateses of self-justification. What does Adam do during that fall that I talked about earlier, right? Uh, he, of course, the head of the household, God goes up to Adam and Adam said, well, she took the fruit. Look at me, God. I didn't take the fruit. He sought to justify himself before God. He tried to lean on the staff of his own righteousness. We are all prone to lean on the wrong staff, all tempted to prove ourselves, to find our satisfaction in the good we do. And perhaps we think, perhaps we think if we do just enough good, God will respect us more, God will love us more, and we will have more reason to feel like we are genuinely saved. And that's not the message John wants to get across. And I think that's why embedded in all of these passages about the necessity of holiness are some other passage, passages, some other verses about the necessity of Christ's blood. Holiness is a great window into your salvation. It's very useful. It's a great window into your salvation. It makes a lousy foundation. Your salvation must not be built upon. It cannot be built upon your holiness. So... Every day, the Christian, I'm talking now about genuine believers, we raise our hand, and by God's grace, we say, Lord, I did it. I messed up. I, I, I took the fruit. And Adam, even though you didn't take it first, you took it. We say, I'm to blame. I'm the problem. And I know that I cannot make it right. This is Christianity 101. Look at 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is such a famous verse, but I'm struck that so many people cut verse 9 out of 1 John to say, I've confessed my sin, I've been baptized, I've sealed the deal, now I can live however I want. Did you not read verses 8 and 10? Right? This is a sweet verse, but it's even sweeter in light of the context. Yes, we fight for holiness. Yes, holiness is the fruit of salvation. But remember, there will be times when you aren't holy. And there will be times when you sin. And so praise God, your holiness is not your Savior. Jesus is your Savior. Confess your sins to God. Be honest with him. And, and the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive. But how does God forgive? Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, I'll talk about verse 2 later on in this series when we revisit this idea of Jesus being our propitiation. But here, just notice in verse 1, Jesus is the righteous. He's the righteous one. Jesus never sinned. Yes, God is light. But as we're going to see next time, Jesus is the light. Jesus, in and of himself, had unlimited access to God the Father, his Father. He could be in the presence of God by virtue of his own sinlessness. He's the righteous one. And John says, because of his righteousness we can be with the Father. But that's not all. Jesus is the advocate. And notice he is our advocate. If anyone does sin, we, he's writing to the church, we have an advocate with the Father. An advocate stands in our place. An advocate argues on our behalf. An advocate represents us in a court of law. So Christian, when, when you sin, you aren't condemned because you have an advocate. Jesus represents you. And when Jesus represents you, he doesn't, say, he doesn't say how great we are. He says to the Father, who is so willing to save? He says to the Father, I died for her. I shed my blood for him. Lean on the staff of your own holiness and you will never know grace. Lean on the staff of Christ, and you will never be condemned. Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who was raised, who is at 
the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, advocating for us, helping us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? So holiness is so important. It is the evidence we are saved, but it's not the reason we are saved. Christ is the reason, the one crucified for us, the one raised for us. And now, in 2021, even when we still sin, right, assuming we're not walking in the darkness, assuming we haven't signed a peace treaty with our sin, assuming we're not comfortable in our sin and just letting the alarm clock buzz while we stay in bed, assuming that's not us, when we sin, Jesus tells the Father, we've been cleansed already by his precious atoning blood. So if you do not know God, holiness is not the way to find him. Christ is the only way. If you are feeling far from God today, trying to do better will not help. You are going to sin. How's that? How's that? for ending a sermon. You are going to sin. You're going to fail. Fight. Wage war with all your power. But remember, Christ fought first. If you do not lean on him, you will fall. And if you do not know how to lean on him, you have something to do this week, don't you? You've got to answer that question. If I, if I preach to you, trust in Jesus, rest in Jesus, believe in Jesus, and it's going in one ear and out the other, or you just really don't know exactly what that looks like, you have something to do. There are a dozen men who want to help you work through that, and 400 men and women at Mount Vernon who are eager and able to help you through that. Every member of Mount Vernon has shared the gospel before joining the church, they can help you. Remember, Christ thought first. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for 1 John 1, 5 through chapter 2, verse 6. We thank you for all of it, but we thank you for this particular passage, which speaks both of the necessity of holiness and of the reality. Holiness does not bring us home. And so we thank you for Jesus Christ, our advocate, for Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and for the fact that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins when we come to you through him. Help us to do that more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.